You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello everyone, what a musical, what a story is Les Miserables. If you aren't familiar with this amazing work of art, oh, I pray this episode will hopefully convert you and get you excited enough to listen to the musical yourself. Like most people, today I first came to know Les Miserables through the Broadway musical, which is actually the longest running musical ever, running non-stop since 1985, spawning countless movie adaptations and shows and so on. It's a story set during the wake of the French Revolution, following the struggles of a few characters as they navigate this very turbulent time. While the original story was written by Victor Hugo in 1862, this episode will largely follow the musical adaptation of the story, which I'm told is faithful enough to the original. And while I fell in love with the classics like Do you hear the people sing? and I dreamed a dream in time gone I've come to appreciate the gentler, more subtle songs like Fantine's Come To Me and the confrontation uh, between Javert and Valjean. So like the Bible, Les Miserables masterfully weaves together the full spectrum of the human experience. Love, hate, um, hope, despair, tragedy, victory, glory, shame, it's all in there. But if that's not enticing enough, it's good to know that Les Miserables is a profoundly Catholic work with the theme of mercy and redemption forming something of the heart of the story. Again, like the Bible, it dares to plunge into the grime of human dysfunction and sin, and yet at the same time, bring forth seeds of hope in the darkness, puncturing the darkness, if you like, with the light of redemption. This is one of those reasons why I feel this musical is so popular and remains so in the Western world. For the possibility of redemption is not really something we offer anymore in a secular culture. One that is so quick to judge and polarise and cancel another at the slightest provocation. Hence you could definitely say that the story of Les Mis is quite prophetic for our times. Okay, there is absolutely no way I can summarise the story of Les Mis in this one episode and I don't really need to. I'll just give the most scanty outline of the story and then hone in on a few key scenes featuring the journey of Jean Valjean, the main character. So Les Mis takes place in Paris, France in the early 1800s. It opens with Jean Valjean, also known as prisoner number 24601, a hardened, roughened man who has been sentenced to 19 years in a prison camp for stealing a loaf of bread and trying to escape multiple times from prison. When he is finally released on parole, he is an angry and bitter man who hates the injustice of the world and as he wanders through the streets, rejected and unable to find work or lodging, he experiences the world hating him. Finally, he happens across one kindly bishop, 
and they have a very special encounter, which we'll look at a little bit later in more detail. But ultimately, um, the bishop inspires Valjean to start afresh as a new man, and so Valjean changes his name, goes into hiding, and rebuilds his life from scratch. Fast forward many years, and he has become a successful town mayor, and uses his privileged position to care for the poor and neglected. But most especially, he uses his means to raise little Cosette, the only daughter of the dying Fantine, who, through her own poverty, had to raise her child through prostitution. And while things seem to be going well enough for Valjean for a time, he is always living in the shadow of Inspector Javert, a policeman who had vowed to relentlessly hunt him down. This Javert is quite a piece of work. He is the embodiment of absolute justice and law and black and white legalism, and simply cannot believe that a criminal who breaks his parole could ever truly change and redeem himself. More on that later. So yeah, fast forward some more, Cosette grows up, falls in love with a Marius, and then like everyone's fates gets intertwined in the violent street uprisings of 1832, where the lower poor class rises up against the bourgeoisie, the rich, and then there are heroes and villains of both sides, hope and tragedy, traitors and martyrs, all that. And in the chaos of barricade warfare, Jean Valjean eventually gives his life to deliver an unconscious Marius safely back to his beloved Cosette. He dies, a reformed and redeemed man, surrounded by those who loved him, and is then led into heaven by those who had taught him love during his lifetime. Amen. Okay, so there's a super quick synopsis of the story, uh, minus a lot of subplots and characters and stuff. Uh, to get the full story, you'll just have to jump on Spotify or something to listen to the whole musical. It's definitely worth it. Or just watch one of the 600 movie adaptations that have been made of the story. Okay, so in line with the topic of this episode, the scene I want to focus on is the scene where Valjean meets the kindly bishop of Ding. This meeting takes place right at the start, really, and defines the trajectory of the whole story and certainly the life of Valjean. So what happens is that when Valjean was released from prison, all his crimes were actually listed on a yellow parole certificate he had to carry with him everywhere he went. This meant that when people saw it, he was treated like scum and that no one would ever dare take him in. As mentioned, he finally bumps into Bishop Muriel, who takes compassion on him and offers Valjean a warm meal and a place to stay for the night. And yet, despite this hospitality, Valjean, having known for so long nothing but the life of a thief, uh, kind of sneaks up in the middle of the night and um, steals the bishop's expensive silverware and makes off with it into the night. Unfortunately, he is immediately caught by two patrolling policemen who drag the poor Valjean back to the bishop to explain the situation. Valjean is terrified and devastated, for not only had he betrayed the only love he had received in decades, he knew he was surely going to be thrown back into the hell of prison, maybe for life this time. But, to his surprise, the bishop calmly explains to the policeman that Valjean had in fact been given the silverware as a gift, and even says to Valjean, But my friend, in your haste to leave, you forgot to take these candlesticks also, then freely gives Valjean the candlesticks as well. I thought I'd play the segment of the musical that sort of describes this scene. Yes, um, I think you'll be able to tell whose voice is the police, um, the bishop and Valjean. Tell his reverence your story. Let us see if he's impressed. You were lodging here last night. You were the honest bishop's guest. And then out of Christian goodness, when he learned about your plight, you maintain he made a present of this silver. That is right. 
But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? So, Monsieur, you may release him. For this man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. And God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have bought your soul for God. Yeah, so then there's a beautiful soliloquy sung by Valjean, which he decides to turn his life around and give it fully to God, concluding with the words, Another story must begin. Okay, so this famous scene is so beautiful because it captures the heart and soul of Christianity. It is a divine type of mercy that the bishop shows towards Valjean, and it is mercy that is the highest quality of God. Hmm? How is that? Isn't the highest quality of God love? Of course it is, but mercy is what love looks like when it gazes upon a sinner. In other words, the love and mercy of God are actually one and the same thing, synonymous, except that mercy mysteriously reveals the full generosity of God's love. For the scandalous truth at the heart of the gospel is this, we are more in touch with the reality of God when we are a sinner than when we are righteous. When we feel we are righteous, there is a tendency to think that somehow we've earned God's love or at least deserve it. Whereas if we see ourselves as a sinner, we know we don't deserve God's love and hence are able to receive it as it really is, free, generous, gratuitous and purely as gift, knowing that it's nothing we've earned. The latter, I suggest, is much more in line with actual reality than the former. I remember a story I once heard in a homily where a murderer was positioned ready to be publicly hanged in the square and a whole crowd had gathered uh, to jeer at him. Suddenly, the distraught mother of the criminal in the crowd cries out from the commotion saying, Have mercy on him, have mercy on him. To which the crowd retorted saying, He doesn't deserve mercy. To which the mother quietly replies, I know he doesn't. That's why it would be mercy. Amen. Now, what happens next to the criminal, we don't know. But we do know that in this Les Miserables Bishop Mercy scene, the criminal Valjean is shown mercy and is cut to the heart in the process. He is shaken to the core by the bishop's small act and his life radically turns 180 degrees. 
whatever resentful worldview he had carried around as a thief and criminal was melted away under grace. And Valjean spends the rest of his life repenting of his past and unfolding the implications of the mercy he had received. Where his old life had once been defined by what he took by force, his new life became defined by what he gave freely to others. This redemption story would be illustrated by later events like him willing to renounce his honoured position as a mayor of the town in order to vindicate a common criminal mistakenly taken for himself. And there's a very dramatic song that goes with that. Uh, He would then show compassion towards the prostitute Fantine and allow her and her daughter Cosette to teach him how to love again. And of course, in a climatic moment in the story, he would pour out the greatest mercy towards his nemesis, the police inspector Javert, sparing his life and letting him go free when he had every power and right to kill him then and there. Dear listeners, Jean Valjean stands in the place of all of us. Perhaps Valjean's journey is so satisfying because our souls yearn for our lives to be transformed in such a gospel light. The old maxim is certainly true that we can only show mercy towards others when we recognize our own need for mercy before God. While we Christians certainly welcome justice uh, wherever it's due, we also never demand it to be done to those who wrong us, because ultimately we leave it for God's wisdom to bring that about. Indeed, it is an earth-shatteringly freeing thing to know that appropriate justice will eventually be given to everyone, but we can be free of the burden of executing it ourselves. For we live instead as embodiments of mercy, beginning, of course, by recognizing our own need for mercy. In my pastoral experiences, I have found that a rather common obstacle to people knowing God is their refusal or inability to recognize themselves as sinners in need of mercy. Now, by sinner, I don't merely refer to more obvious things like someone who steals and lies and, you know, gluttonous and being caught up in addictions and stuff like that. No, recognizing ourselves as sinners also means recognizing those deep attitudes of pride, judgmentalism, you know, um, idolatry of some person or thing or idea, uh, or even the worship of ourselves. These sinful patterns are truly toxic to the soul and often go undetected underneath the sort of superficial sins. For when these sort of attitudes take root in our heart, we become hardened, uh, what the scriptures call the hardening of heart, the inability to be humble and docile before the love of God. Of course, the other extreme to this isn't helpful either. You know, that belief that we can earn God's love by trying harder and following the rules and being more moral, etc., etc. This Pelagian, which is a type of heresy, uh, this Pelagian understanding of Christianity is in fact in all of us, shaped as we are by the values of the culture around us. But if what St. Faustina Kowalska said is true, that mercy is indeed the highest quality of God, then one of the preconditions of receiving God's mercy is knowing that we don't deserve it. And every page in the Bible seems to proclaim this truth. It's the sinful Zacchaeuses and Peters and Pauls and women at the well and Mary Magdalene's and King David's that, that truly encounter God rather than the righteous scribes and Pharisees. This is good news for all of us and stupendously brilliant news for those of us who feel we've made a mess of our lives. For Les Mis offers us a beautiful hope of redemption and the beauty of a life after mercy. For while the story of Jean Valjean is fictional, something deep within us knows that the journey of conversion can truly be for you and I too. 
we too yearn for this type of encounter with God's mercy, one that can radically shape our lives forevermore. Now, almost by contrast to all of the above, the antithesis of everything we've explored about Valjean is the policeman Javert. Javert, if you remember, is the police inspector who from the start is presented as the antagonist, a man who relentlessly hunts Jean Valjean after he breaks his parole. But the author of Les Mis, Victor Hugo, is clear to present Javert as more of a tragic figure than an evil one. For Javert's own understanding of mercy and justice are quite warped and perverted. In the musical, Javert's beautiful song slash prayer uh, called Stars betrays something of this tragedy because it is clear that he has turned the hunting down and punishing of Valjean as his one goal in life, turning the capturing of Valjean into a sort of idol in the place of the real God. We learn that Javert is inclined this way because he himself was born inside a jail to two criminal parents, with his mum being a gypsy too, which was a big no-no in his eyes. Right from the outset, Javert effectively disowns his own identity, shuns mercy and compassion, and suppresses his own frail origins, trying to compensate instead by living a life dogmatically following the rule of the law to perfection, never to break a single rule before Almighty God. Yet you may remember from earlier that to deny one's sinful propensity before God, or to pretend that we can earn God's affection by our good deeds, are precisely the means by which our hearts become hardened. This is Javert's plight. So rigid is his worldview, so obsessed he is of becoming the arbiter of justice instead of God, that when Valjean shows him mercy at the barricades, he is unable to process it and goes mad. He just couldn't make sense of the fact that the criminal he had been hunting for decades could actually become redeemed, and would now spare his own life when he had every right to take it. And so, Valjean's act of mercy literally unravels Javert. In a stroke of musical genius, the same melody of the song of Valjean's conversion is the same melody used in the song of Javert's tragic suicide, from which he throws himself into the river and drowns. The central message of Les Miserables couldn't be clearer. Both men received an unearned gesture of mercy, but each man responded to it completely differently. For Valjean, he receives the bishop's mercy and he is reborn a new man. For Javert, he rejects Valjean's mercy and becomes destroyed by it. But was it mercy that actually kills Javert, or he's pretending he could live a life without it? If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. You know, probably the greatest man of the 20th century is Pope John Paul II. <laughs> a favourite of mine, so a bit of bias there. Um, but he is also known as the Pope of Mercy. Despite all his wondrous, epic contributions he made to our civilization, think of World Youth Days, theology of the body, the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, ecumenical dialogue, the dignity of work, the dignity of women, the Pope actually said that the highlight of his pontificate was the establishment of Divine Mercy Sunday 
which is now, as you probably know, the first Sunday after Easter, saying it was the happiest day of his life. Now, perhaps you've seen or heard of the devotion to Divine Mercy. You'll probably recognize the image if I showed you, you know, the one with Jesus in a white gown with two rays of light emanating from his heart, one red, one white, or a little bit bluey. This image was first received in a vision by Sister Faustina Kowalska, who is now a saint. This, along with her diaries written between 1934 and 1938, forms what we now call the Divine Mercy. Through it, our Lord Jesus invites all the world to reflect again on his mercy and to urgently pray for the conversion of sinners. Now, I had personally known about this devotion, but for a long time I assumed, oh, it's not really for me because, you know, it wasn't one of those pious, you know, Filipino ladies who sit in the front of church, you know, wearing a veil, praying the rosary. <laughs> and after all, we're told that such private revelations are, yeah, sure, they're gifts for the church, but they're not essential, really. But as St. Faustina reminds us again and again, mercy is not some optional extra private devotion. It is Christianity. It is the heart of the gospel. And earlier this year, I was led through no planning of my own into the graces of this beautiful devotion. Despite being a Catholic most of my life, it had to take a series of really destabilizing events to help me realize just how hardened my heart was and how much I really did think I could earn God's favor by my good deeds. It's very deeply ingrained. Gosh, how I wish I could communicate how scary realizing all this was, but also how freeing. I will spare you the details now, at least for this episode, but I guess I'll take this chance to testify that the Divine Mercy devotion actually seemed to pursue me, in the same way that God's love pursues every one of us. Because in the middle of my horrid mess this year, an illustrated book about the Divine Mercy arrived from an overseas friend. Then, in the same week, a separate friend randomly presented me a custom-made cross with the Divine Mercy Jesus, then two prophetic words were given to me highlighting God's mercy. And then the next week during a retreat, my computer inexplicably um, paused itself at the word mercy while I was listening to the Divine Mercy Chaplet being sung. And it was exactly three o'clock, a.k.a. the hour of mercy. I think God might have been trying to get my attention. And since then, I have been praying the three o'clock prayer and the Divine Mercy Chaplet daily. What this means for me and my future, my ministry, I don't know yet. And I can say that I too am a pilgrim like you, only beginning really to tiptoe into the ocean of God's merciful heart. But at the same time, deeply believing that God's divine mercy might, like Jean Valjean, change everything I once knew about myself and the God whom I choose to follow. So I'd encourage you that if you'd like to deepen in God's mercy and to know the power it has to change your life, I will leave a link to a really good talk by Sister Gaudia Skas that introduces both St. Faustina and her image in a gentle and really grounded way. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes and on the website. This would certainly be a very appropriate practical pilgrim exercise for you and hopefully one that will bear lifelong fruits. Alternatively, I do suggest bringing to mind those whom you find difficult extending mercy towards. May our reflections this episode leads you to a deeper awareness of God's mercy for you, that it may overflow from you towards those who need it most. In this near impossible task, O Lord, we beseech your mercy upon us and upon the whole world. Amen. Okay, next time, dear pilgrims, journey forth. Take care and God bless.